Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. Are you ready for global cryptocurrency money laundering regulations? Cyphertrace secures the crypto economy with powerful AML tools for exchanges, crypto businesses, and regulators. My guest today is Charlie Lee, the creator of Litecoin. Welcome, Charlie. Hey, Laura. Thanks for having me. This was a crazy week because of the Ethereum Classic 51% attack. Tell us what happened there. Uh, I think... Coinbase was one of the first uh, exchanges that noticed that the Ethereum Classic was being 51% taxed. So they were seeing blocks being rolled back. And the attack wasn't against them. So they didn't lose any money, but they, they saw multiple deep reorganizations. And tell listeners who don't know what a 51% attack is, what that means and what it means for blocks to be rolled back. Back. <laughs> What it means is that um, there's someone that is mining that has enough hash rate that is equal to or more than 51% of the total network hash rate. So if you have more than half of the network hash rate, then you can mine blocks like in secret with double spends. And then when you release your blockchain, it's longer than what the whole network has produced. So your longer blockchain becomes um, overtakes the the actual whatever blockchain it was previously. So your double spends will actually become a real spends, and previous the other spends will become um, canceled because they're double spent. So the attack would be you deposit ETC to an exchange, and then on the side secretly mine a longer chain that has double spend, which undo, undoes the, the deposit. So you deposit money on exchange, trade it for Bitcoin, withdraw Bitcoin, and then release the 51% attack longer chain. And then basically you get your money back. You get your ETC back. Yeah. And when you were talking about how um, someone essentially kind of mines and secrets and then releases this blockchain that's longer and has more work on it that effectively like wipes out the transactions. Um, uh, it, well, obviously if they've been mining and have included those, uh, some of those transactions, then some of those will be repeated. But in terms of the double spend in the first scenario, they will have sent, it will be like, you know, Alice paying Bob, but then she secretly mines a longer blockchain. And when she publishes it, then in that new blockchain, she won't have paid Bob. She will have paid Charlie, you. And so then, um, or, 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 uh, I guess in the first case, instead of Bob, it's like an exchange. And, yeah. um, and then, uh, but in actually in the second case, it's normally she's just paying herself and then herself, she, yeah. <laughs> she retains that money. Yeah. Um, so at the moment of this recording, it looks like the attackers have so far made off with $1.1 million in their attack. And so 
how do you know like which exchanges they targeted and and why those exchanges were not able to stop it because i think initially it wasn't 1.1 million it was like a, a lower figure and so it was initially it was half a million um but it's the the figure is how much uh coins were double spent doesn't necessarily mean that they actually made off with that much so um i did hear that were i think a couple chinese exchanges that were being uh, targeted or maybe more, but some a couple of them have reported actually losing money from this attack. Yeah. So in, in, I think one of them is gate.io. I don't know if that's a Chinese exchange, but they said that they had lost $200,000 worth of ETC. So do you think there are any particular types of exchanges that are more vulnerable to being targeted for double spends than other exchanges? Yeah. It would be exchanges that have uh, low or no KYC, so the user who attacking the exchange obviously doesn't want his identity identity to be tied to the account. So if an exchange has uh, no KYC and has high um, volume or high limits for deposit withdrawals, then there will be a bigger target. So that's why like people aren't targeting Coinbase, which has pretty um, extensive KYC. So if you actually try to attack Coinbase, they know exactly who you are, right? So that's not going to be cool for the for the thief or the hacker. <laughs> so Coinbase did stop withdrawals of ETC once they detected the double spends on their exchange. I mean, so in that situation, who does that help? Is it to ensure that Coinbase doesn't lose funds or is it to ensure that their customers don't lose funds? It's to ensure that Coinbase doesn't lose funds, right? So Coinbase is not going to be double spending when, they, when they're sending ETC out. So it's about... ETC being deposited to Coinbase, if it gets rolled back and Coinbase lets the user um, sell their ETC for Bitcoin and withdraw that, then Coinbase is on the hook for the loss. But so this didn't actually happen at this time, but just we'll talk about a hypothetical scenario. Often mm -hmm. it has been said that in a 51% attack, that would drive the price down because people would lose confidence in that blockchain. So if an exchange does that where they do stop the withdrawals, then won't that sort of screw over customers? Because what if they had, you know, um, I don't know, like a thousand dollars worth of ETC on the exchange at the time, or, or actually let's make it a bigger figure, you know, like, like $10,000 worth or whatever. And then they, um, were not able to withdraw and it went down to like 5,000 or something. Isn't that, I, I don't know, isn't that a bad customer experience at the very least? Yeah. I mean, from my mind, when, if a coin is susceptible or is being 51% attacked, it's actually a really bad sign. Right? If a coin can't provide um, enough security to make sure that um, double spends don't happen, then it's not a real good um, cryptocurrency. So I'm I'm actually quite surprised that the price hasn't dropped much more than it has. Um, I guess the market is not very not it's pretty it's still not pretty sane, right? Yeah, we're actually we're gonna talk about that in a second, but before before we get there, I wanted to also just ask a little bit more about about like how the attack occurs. So um so I, I wanted to ask about what I was saying before. So if I'm let's say that I'm let's say that I it was Monday. So it was kind of like when the attack was happening, but maybe before it was widely known. Then if I'm transacting an ETC, um, generally do does my transaction go through and is the attack really only about 
you know, something that tar- that hits this exchange and do everyday people, are they sort of like not affected? Yeah, they're not affected. So 51% attacks can, you can only like double spend or you can, you can do, um, you can block transactions if, if that's what the attacker wants to do, but you can't steal money from someone else. Right. So if, if, um, if one person is doing ETC transactions, they may see the transaction getting rolled back or the attacker may just include those, um, unrelated transactions in his blockchain anyways, because it's unrelated to his attack. Um, he would just still collect the fees for, for the transaction. So if you're just using ETC normally, it won't really affect you unless the attacker decides to, for example, mine empty blocks. That'll be another kind of 51% attack where you kind of just kill the economy of the coin. Oh, interesting. But I guess in that scenario, let's say that I uh, thought that I was sending ETC to you. And then obviously there was this 51% attack and the blockchain got reorganized and then essentially all that would happen if the attacker decided not to uh, include the other transactions in the new blockchain, then it would just be as if I did not send you the money and I would still retain my coins. Sort of, but your the transaction of you sending is still unconfirmed. Um, so it will still be sitting in a mempool waiting for the next miner to add it to the next block. Oh, okay. Okay. Right. So, it eventually... so the money is still kind of in limbo. Eventually it should, it should, go through unless you actually create a double spend and try to get another transaction in. Oh, okay. So one thing I saw is that you tweeted, be careful with coins that are not dominant in their respective mining algorithm, especially ones that are nice hashable. ETC has less than 5% of the total ETH hash rate and is 98% nice hashable. And so a one hour attack cost $5,000 and almost $500,000 has been spent. So what does it mean to be nice hashable? Um, yeah. So nice hash is a website where people um, lent out their hash rate, where you can purchase hash rate and use it to mine whatever coin you want or whatever coin that actually supports that hash, that mining algorithm. Right. So if you have, um, I think it's mostly just um, GPUs, right? So if you have a GPU, you can mine any coin that is GPU mineable. And if you have like a script ASIC or a SHA-256 ASIC, then you can mine like Bitcoin or Litecoin or whatever coins that are script in SHA-256. So if a if the hash rate for a coin, if if the hash rate, for example, let's say it's 100 mega hash is the total network hash rate of the coin, and you can rent that much hash rate on NiceHash, then someone can effectively just pay however much it is, a few thousand dollars to rent that hash rate and 51% attack your coin. Right? There's wow. no, they don't, they don't have to buy ASICs. They don't have to buy GPUs. They can just do a one-time um, rent rental of that hash rate and attack the coin. Right? And that's the case for ETC. It's Last I checked, it was like 97 or 200% of the, ha- of the network hash rate is is on nice hash and it's mined via gpus yes yeah this goes back to a conversation i had with david vorick of saya coin and um, nebulous and obelisk where he was kind of discussing the merits of um choosing ASICs over GPUs. So people should check out that episode if they haven't yet. Uh, So in a moment, we're going to discuss the price action. But first, a quick word from our fabulous sponsors. 
Ready or not, the Financial Action Task Force anti-money laundering recommendations soon go into effect globally. If you handle cryptocurrencies, no matter where you do business, these new AML laws will apply to you. CypherTrace helps exchanges, ICOs, funds, brokerages, and regulators understand and manage crypto asset and compliance risks. Learn how to reduce your exposure and prepare now for tough new regulations. CypherTrace is securing the crypto economy. Learn more at cyphertrace.com slash unconfirmed. Back to my conversation with Charlie. So why do you think the 51% attack did not crash the price? I really don't know, to be honest. I'm not sure. Like if I was holding ETC and I saw it's being 51% attack, especially because it's still ongoing, right? It's been days. It's the whole, the whole network is just kind of frozen. Well, the network's not frozen, but like all the exchanges have stopped withdrawals and deposits. You can't really do much with ETC. So like, what's the whole point of the, of the coin if it's not secure? So if I had any ETC, I, I would have sold it, right? So I'm, I'm surprised the price hasn't crashed, to be honest. Yeah, something that I was thinking about is that the conventional wisdom around 51% attacks has always been that there was very little incentive to mount such an attack because doing so would cause the price to fall, which would then make it nearly impossible for the attacker to actually benefit financially from the attack. Well, not, but since that didn't, well, sorry, no? sorry to you. not necessarily because one of the ways for the attacker to make money is to actually short the coin and attack it and then make money from the coin price dropping. That's true. That's true. I guess earlier on, um, when there were fewer options for shorting, that was part of it. Um, but I just, but even so, I guess like you're right that it sort of feels like confidence in the blockchain has not been shaken. Do you, so do you think that this type of, uh, this crypto economic game theory has proven false or do you think that it was never even really the case in the first place? Uh, I don't think it's proven false. I think, um, the fact that ETC is, um, so easily attacked is a bad sign for ETC, right? So my tweet about being the dominant, dominant coin in the respective hash rate, um, it means that coins like Bitcoin and Litecoin where they're dominating their, their mining algorithm. And I think, uh, to correct the point, I think ETC is being mined by ASICs. I think there are ASICs for, um. for Ethereum, for AdHash. So being the dominant coin in your in the respective um, mining algorithm is important because the people, the miners that are owning the um, the mining machines, will not attack a coin and kill their um, their goose that lays a golden egg, right? Like the, if you attack Litecoin, if you ha- if you have like fifty one percent of all script ASICs and use it to attack Litecoin, and and you kill Litecoin, then you basically um, make all your uh, mining hardware useless because it can't really make much much money from mining something else. Whereas with Ethereum Classic, if you use um, AdHash ASICs to attack Ethereum Classic and you manage to actually kill it, right? If the value goes to zero, you can always go back to mine Ethereum, right? And still be able to make mm-hmm. money from, from your mining hardware. So I think it's important for a coin to, especially for ASIC coins to be actually dominant in the respective hash mining algorithm. Yeah. I mean, I, so I think that this definitely proves that the incentives did line up correctly for the attacker to perpetrate this attack. I just, I just wonder 
it's like, it's kind of like what we were saying earlier about how if you wanted to transact an ETC on the blockchain, that it wouldn't in some ways really hurt you. And so I wonder if that's why the price didn't crash. Maybe. And, and yet at the same time, there's like, it's also a little bit like, why would you want to hold something that doesn't feel secure? Yeah, especially because the attacker can short the coin and then do a denial of service attack where they mine empty blocks um, forever, right? So nothing, no transactions, no economy can happen on the on chain. Then you effectively kill the coin and the price will definitely crash then. Cause right, no, but maybe they haven't shorted it, so maybe they're not. Yeah, but the fact from- that... It's nice hashable and it has such low hash rate. It's, it's not secure, so I wouldn't want to hold it. Right. I'm just surprised some people would want to hold something like that. Yeah. I'm starting to wonder if instead of calling like this crypto economics, if it should be called crypto behavioral psychology, <laughs> because like part of it may just be that people are busy and they're a little bit like, oh man, it's going to be a pain to sell my ETC, like forget about it. Or, you know, maybe it's on Coinbase and they can't. And so maybe that's also why we haven't seen the price crash. Yeah. Um, is the, is trading still open for the coin? I think it is, right? So you can still oh. sell it. Oh, interesting. So maybe it is really people just either they haven't heard or they don't understand what it means, or they don't care, or they're busy, or... (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I can't tell you. I don't know why. Um, Well, something else I was wondering is, do you think that it's typically proof-of-work coins that are vulnerable to this type of attack? For a mining 51% attack, yes, it's only proof-of-work coins. And the, the idea behind the Nakamoto consensus is that miners will not have incentives to attack the coin because it will destroy their um, their investment. They'll make more money just mining normally. Um, but that breaks down when your coin is like 5% or 2% of the total network hash rate and you can just rent it out easily. Then there there are incentives to attack that coin. So that's, that's what my tweet was all about. So be careful like investing in coins that are not dominant in their hash rate and are nice hashable. Right, because they can easily be attacked. And so, do you think that this whole um, situation maybe is a point in favor of proof of stake con- as a consensus algorithm? Um, I don't think it breaks. It really breaks down proof of work. It actually, to me, it actually shows that proof of work works. But you just have to be make sure you're like the dominant coin in the proof of work. Um, right. So, um, and. Proof of stake has its own issues, right? So it's 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 hard to say which which one is better. I personally prefer proof of work, um, but a lot of people like proof of stake also. And the, so another tweet that I wanted to mention that you um, posted the other day was you said, by definition, a decentralized cryptocurrency must be susceptible to fifty one percent attacks, whether by hash rate, stake, and or other permissionlessly acquirable resources. If a crypto can't be fifty one percent attacked, it is permissioned and centralized. Can you elaborate on what you meant there? Sure. So what I'm trying what I was trying to say is that um, to be decentralized, it's permissionless. Right, anyone should be able to join. And for for mining for proof of work coins, it's anyone should be able to um, buy whatever GPUs or ASICs and mine the coin, or even just using your computer. Right, anyone can can 
um, mine the coin and help secure the network. So given that, um, there will be a way for someone or not one person, but there will be, it should be susceptible to a 51% attack where half of the network, um, the hash rate is attacking the coin, right? doesn't mean that it's likely um, or makes sense economically to do that, but there, there has to be a way for that to happen for a coin to, to be, to claim to be decentralized. So what I mean by like permissionlessly acquirable, it's either like hash rate or buying coins if you're attacking proof of stake, right? If you have enough stake, you can attack proof of stake coins. So you have to be, someone has to be able to, without asking anyone for permission, be able to acquire enough resources to attack the coin. And that's kind of like the definition of being decentralized. So when you can't do that, it's because it's a permission system where you have to ask someone for permission, right? It's either um, a list of master nodes that is um, assigned by either organization or some other way where you have to be um, privileged in order to help uh, dictate consensus, Right. And in that system, it's not decentralized. It's relatively centralized. So it sounds like the sweet spot is to have such a system where a 51% is possible, but that the nobody would be incentivized to do it because of what we were saying before that you have obtained the, um, the top spot in your, uh, the dot that you're the dominant coin in your proof of work algorithm or correct. in your correct, yeah. and that's okay. what the I mean, if you read the Bitcoin white paper, that's what that what that's what it lays out, right? The fact that um, you can 51% attack it as a potential attack factor, um, but there's no incentives for miners to do that because they will actually make more money, um, doing the right thing, which is to secure the network versus attacking it. Okay. So one other thing I want to ask you is, so do you think that Coinbase or other exchanges will end up delisting ETC or any other coins that look like they could be targets of such an attack? I'm not sure. Um, I think if this persists, right, if, if the network is just not able to secure, to be secure, then I can't imagine Coinbase or any exchanges like supporting a coin or keep keep trading it because they put, could constantly, there will constantly be a threat that they could lose money. Right. So it's not, they have, they have to spend a lot more resources um, just being more careful with it. I think it's not, it's not worth their time to do that. Um, whether or not they will actually delist it is another question. So it depends on what happens with this attack, right? If the attack turns into like a denial of service attack, then they would be forced to delist it because no one can actually transact on the ATC network. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds super tricky because then you would have to get anybody who wanted to keep their ATC to move it on to their own hardware uh, or, or their own wallet and then um, uh, force the other people to sell or convert. I don't know what you would make them do, but... <laughs> but unfortunately, like for... For these smaller coins that don't have like a secure network, they would have to resort to more centralizing um, system of checkpointing or something where they can protect themselves. Because like Bitcoin, Litecoin, these like fully decentralized system only work under um, certain conditions. And if if those conditions don't exist, then 
unfortunately you just have to go towards a more centralizing um, system, right? Like Bitcoin Cash did that when they were under threat of 51% attack from from uh, BSV and Craig Wright. They went to checkpointing um, and also automatic checkpointing and other other systems, which is more centralizing. But I think they were just they were forced to do that because otherwise they were constantly uh, threat of attack. Well, well, it's never a boring week in the crypto space. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on the show. Sure, Laura. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about the topics we discussed, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast player. New episodes of Unconfirmed come out every Friday. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you liked this episode, share it with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Raylene Gallipoli, Fractal Recording, Jenny Josephson, and Daniel Ness. Thanks for listening.